Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Rich Alipak to the show. Rich is the founder of We All Live Here, an organization that uses art, community, and technology to develop experiences, programs, and activities that remind us all to get along and help each other succeed. Their ACT program works with schools, parks, libraries, and community groups to spread our positive and inclusive message to teach youth how to combat hatred effectively. Rich has also been featured on TED Talk X to discuss his passionate work around the topic of, can we solve hard to talk about issues through public mantras? He is also a creative team builder, collaborative leader, consistent closer, frequent speaker, innovative thought leader, and public advocate of diversity and inclusion. Welcome to the show. Wow, it's been a while since I heard that intro. Thank you for the kind words. (laughs) Richard, if you don't mind, I think we'd all love to hear a little bit more about uh, We All Live Here and why you started that organization. Sure. Um, I, I think back in 2015, I sort of must have been sensing the division that we're all living through right now. And I just happened to be walking my dog when I thought of this phrase. And I, I just was struck by the simplicity of the message and income equality, gender equality, racial equality, sexual equality, the environment, they all kind of fall under the umbrella of these four simple words and nothing really complex ever changes the world. But I felt like simple reminders like this installed into our communities through public art projects done by local kids might, you know, just at least plant the seed for the youth to have a more positive, inclusive mindset and maybe just maybe change a few adults who we could have potentially thought were lost causes. <laughs> so, but anyway. No, there does, I, I think you touch on an important issue from a generational standpoint. I think that's something Martin Luther King always talked about was, you know, there's, there's certain folks that they're just set in their ways and you're not going to be able to have an impact on them. Yeah. And it's, it's okay. I mean, they're, they're allowed to have those, those views, right? Like it's when we start to impose our views on other people for the sake of imposing without really understanding who the other person is or anything that we start to get into some troublesome areas. And, and, but yeah, I think it's important to remember that everybody's entitled to their own opinions. They're allowed to think the thoughts that they think it's just a, it's another part of the message that needs to uh, that's a good reminder for people i love your your thought around nothing complicated ever really changed the world how did you come to that idea i think it's it's i, I one i think it's great and i think it's spot on but tell me more how, how that evolved yeah so i started eventually to work with schools and then because i was working with schools i eventually started working with with some of the colleges around here. And, and whenever I had the conversation about we all live here with some academic folks, a lot of people kind of dismissed it at first for being too simple. And so it kind of forced me to think about, well, how do I counter that argument? I mean, you can't bombard people with something that they don't understand and expect them to do anything different. But if you can get everybody rowing in the same direction, in order to get everyone rowing in the same direction, you've got to have a simple 
boat to row, right? A simple technique to use. And I think something like a mantra or motto has that ability because it's the same kind of thing. We see people hanging quotes on their walls, having them on their phones, posting on their Instagrams. And if that helps people get through the day in some small way, then why not try to do that as community messaging to help communities remember to get along and help each other succeed. So what was, uh, I'm curious, what was one of the most impactful mantras or tell us a story around how that played out in execution? Yeah, I mean, there's a school in, in the West Town Ukrainian village area and most of the school is fairly liberal and progressive population. And then they were they were worried when I came to do our ACT program at the school because there's one particular family that's known for being very conservative. And so they were worried about how that reaction of this message might be perceived by the, by the parents when they came and picked up the kids at school that day. And so everybody sort of kind of held me aside and were like, okay, so there's the family, you know, and I, I didn't have much background. But I didn't run from the person I went up to her. And she said to me, you know, I heard that you you talked to all the, the, the students at our school today and your message is this, we all live here. And, you know, I wanted to know what that meant so that if my daughter asked me questions, I can understand where you were coming from. And I just said, look, I mean, I think the thing that we have to remember is we're all different, right? We Every single one of us is different. We're entitled to our own beliefs. We're entitled to our own identities and whether you're right you're left you know you're blue brown or pink (laughs) there's a place for you in society and we need to remind each other on both sides of that because if we don't have that we become just a homogenous society that consists of only one tribe of people we're not doing humanity any favors because we do need all the pieces of this giant human puzzle in order to have our best success Absolutely. I think, uh, I think that's what makes Chicago as strong as it does. We've, I think about it like we have a much wider range of potential solutions because we have such a wider range of experiences. Right. And I think it's that's especially when you're thinking about, but I also, I, I find it interesting from a leadership standpoint, because one of the things I try to do, uh, with any team I lead, whether it's, you know, some of the, the third and fourth grade lacrosse players I coach down in Beverly or, the team that I run at Dragon Spears is simplicity is, I think, part of the objective of anybody to to create change and be a leader. Uh, it's it's got to resonate. It's got to be easy to remember. It's got to be it's got to be laser focused too, right? It's got to be pretty sharp uh, and like really have an impact. And that that takes, I think, that takes a lot of work. Is that something you find that you're very good at naturally? Is that something you've taught other people how to do? How does that play out? That's a good question. I think I'm generally someone who's trying to be as efficient as I possibly can. And I don't know if I started out that way or if I just became that way as I got older, but life experience leads you through many different places and journeys. And you're right. You have to be simple with your messaging. I've been in sales a lot in my life. And when you're selling something, if you overcomplicate, what you're selling, you can watch the customer's eyes roll back in their head. Like they don't even want to be in the room anymore, let alone buy whatever you're selling. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. I had a boss one time that 
they were big on the script, right? Like that you have to sell this this way with these the words. Tracks. Yes. And and that was their way of managing to make sure that they knew that you were selling the way you were supposed to do. But that's detrimental to many people because it doesn't allow them to have their personality shine through. And I always think that you're going to sell a lot more of whatever you're selling if the person believes in you, mm-hmm. not necessarily the product, right? And so they believe in you, then 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 they can trust what you're selling. So I think all of that feeds together and helps you uh, helps you achieve results. And if you just keep trying to overcomplicate things, it's not going to work. <laughs> Nothing, nothing's going to work. You're, you're probably it, it's like studying. Like we study all these traffic studies. Well, you know how many times you need to study to know that that street is having accidents because there's no stop sign on one of the two of the directions, right? At some point, you got to start solving the problem and stop studying the problem. Mm. So that is a, that is a, I think a big challenge for a lot of people: uh, the solving the problem as opposed to documenting the problem. Well, they're documenting that they're trying to do something about the right. problem so their job is safe, right? <laughs> but at some point, someone's got to do the job. I, I have a friend who's also a, a street artist. He's actually even more meta. He he <laughs> fills potholes with tile-based art. So he sees oh. the problem and he fixes it by putting like a mosaic into the pothole. Well, if you could think about how an audience for an artist might fall in love I mean, there's nothing that people in a civic community hate more than the potholes that are wrecking their car, right? So he's Absolutely. immediately endearing himself to every single person who drives or rides a bike or anything. Yeah. And uh, and that's as simple of a solution as you could possibly get, right? He throws wow. on a fake construction outfit and just fills it in. <laughs> wow. But the city will come along and pave over his his work at times, and it's just crazy. There's a lot of money in those contracts. There sure is. Right there with the salt. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of money to be made in salt during the winter here in Chicago. I, it's an interesting, at first when you said uh, he fills potholes, I thought he was like, it like so he's out being a, a, a street artist, which I, it, from my experience translated into gra- graffiti, right? Right, uh, right. And so then, so it just seemed like, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a Clark Kent Superman kind of situation there. Like during the day, <laughs> those potholes, and at night he's out tagging, right? Which I think that'd be kind of a cool comic book. Now that I think about it, I'm gonna copyright that before you guys can at the end of this call. <laughs> I don't want you guys running around. Sounds like the next Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So probably I could draw if you uh, if you need an artist. Can you? Yes, I cannot. I can. I couldn't. Yeah, stick figures. Right. I tried. Uh, you should have seen me with like, uh, anyways, we're not going on that subject. We're going to take <laughs> out most of what I just said. So don't worry about that. Uh, so what is the future for uh, we all live here? Well, so it's I'm excited by the future because, you know, I, I, I told you guys this story before, but I think I I blame myself for this whole pandemic that we all live through because I you must be a Cubs fan. <laughs> I was on a different podcast um, in February of 2020, and the woman interviewing me asked how it was going after you know doing We All Live Here for five years. And I said, 
well, you know, it's fantastic. We, I could see all the way to November, all the projects that we're doing, all the days that are filled up on the calendar, all the schools that we're working with. And, uh, and then the next week, the pandemic hit. So if I had not taken the, the chance to boast about how many projects that were coming up, I, we, I could have saved us all a lot of heartache. But to get, answer your, your actual question, um, we had to do a pandemic pivot because we couldn't get together with people and create public art. And we couldn't go into schools and do the assemblies and teach the kids the things that we teach and, and then create the public art. And so one of the things that got me through those early days was the projects that I did have. Thankfully, the kids or the principals were still wanting those to be completed as a thing to be excited whenever the kids did come back to school. And so they would come outside because what people don't realize is principals never left their buildings. The whole rest of the building was gone, but the principals were still there. And so they'd be bored and have no, no one to talk to. So they'd come outside and talk to me and start talking to me about the challenges of remote and hybrid learning. And I started listening and, and you know, asking questions like a designer would, right? Just kind of trying to see if there's anything I could do about the problem. And one of the things that really jumped out to me was there was a principal that told me that he had a teacher that wanted to reconnect with his math students by just teaching them how to play the guitar, right? That's musical, that's mathematics. But he had no way to do that because at this school, YouTube was was blocked. If you or I wanted to make a lesson on how to play the guitar, we might just create a video and upload it to YouTube. But in this case, that wouldn't work. And so he was bemoaning the fact that he wanted to say yes to this teacher, but there was nowhere for that content, if you will, to live. And so I heard this and I happened to have some friends that were developing some software to be used for keeping company culture together and to, you know, make an online version of a trade show or something like that. And so they had asked me to come and beta test their software. And so I popped up into this virtual world that they had built and it was a burning man, virtual world, all hand-drawn burning man. And I was like, oh, this is wild. And then there was a little avatar. And so I did what anybody would do. I was like, oh, that must be another person. I walked my little avatar over to that little avatar. And it was my friend, Chris, when I thought I was meeting my friend, Dylan. And Chris is like, well, you just had the experience that we want people to have in this virtual environment, the experience of running into someone you didn't expect to run into, like you might at a conference or you might if you're at a trade show. And so I was very intrigued at that point because I sort of walked into the trap, if you will. And so they, they walked me through what they were building and how it all worked. And at the end, I said, look, I, I wish you guys all the best of luck. I hope, you know, Google comes in and buys this. But what I'd like to do is license this from you for educational purposes, because I think this can solve a big problem that schools are running into right now during the pandemic with, you know, just keeping the school schedule on track keeping the social aspect of school still there. It was never meant to replace the classroom, but if we could give schools a virtual environment that the school could be open 24-7 and the teachers could create content that could live there and the partners, outside vendors like myself, we all live here, that normally would work with schools could put their programming within the world, all of a sudden you'd start to create this thing that felt a lot more like school then the initial remote felt like school. And so I started to show principals what this technology could do. 
I'd already worked with 110 different schools or something like that. So I kind of created a cohort of 30 different principles that I bounced ideas off of with this software. And one of the first principles that looked at it said, Rich, this solves a problem that no one's, it's a basic problem that no one's ever told me how we're going to solve. How, if I'm going to remote hybrid learning, how am I going to keep the kids at home focused or still online when the kids in one classroom have to walk down the hall to get to another classroom? You know, how am I going to do that? And I, when I asked that question to downtown, nobody has an answer for me. And she's like, this is great because the kids could just go disappear into Schooltopia while they're waiting for the next class to start. And they just hang out with their friends like they would in the little seven minutes in between classes or whatever it is. And then lunch and recess can be within Schooltopia and you could hang out with your friends within the environment. But I wanted to have also the environment where, you know, outside third-party vendors could kind of help solve some of these problems that the schools were having. And that would create an ecosystem or a, a, an on-ramp for some of that help to be able to, to arrive. That's amazing. That's really exciting. Yeah. And how many early adopters have you had or what's been your success with that program? Well, so I, I guess this is probably something that I learned that might be useful for the audience. I had already worked with a number of CPS schools. So I thought in my head, the strategy was let's get CPS on board because if Chicago public schools gets on board, that's the third largest school district in the country. And if they start using this software, then we can go get all the rest of the school districts based on that. And I knew that I was biting off probably uh, an impossible thing um, to do, but there was a lot of movement because this was a problem that was definitely needing to be solved and nobody was coming up with a solution. So I had many meetings with instructional technology folks. I had many meetings with uh, different districts within Chicago public schools to try to make this move forward. But, um, you know, we're still, I guess we're about two and a half years later now, and uh, we're still waiting on the technology contract because I was set up as an arts vendor, I had to then go through and become a technology vendor, which if you're bringing programming to a school, any principal has the autonomy to do whatever they want within the four walls of their building. But they don't have the autonomy to just buy technology ad nauseum from whoever comes in the door selling them technology, which is probably a good thing. So I just felt like we'll just keep hammering away, hammering away and hammering away and being patient until it finally starts to happen. And uh, unfortunately, the bureaucracy won. So we're starting to now explore, um, as we talked about in, in previous chats, starting to explore looking at other districts to see how we can get some of those beta partners in action. It's really just a content creation cost recovery for our business. And then we can spread that cost across all the schools that end up signing up. So. What would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned through this process that if uh, there's other entrepreneurs out there looking at, because I think it's an interesting strategy of connecting a solution to a problem, augmenting that solution in a very specific way. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes people feel like the I, when I talk to entrepreneurs, they're like, well, I've got to come up with the solution, right? Like I've, I've got to create the technology where 
in your circumstance, it was more of augmenting and taking something and applying it in a way that other people didn't see. I think that's really interesting uh, and definitely a, a place where you can learn faster and significantly less exposure on the paying developers yourself personally. But uh, And that's just one thought that I heard through this story. But is there other things where you'd say, you know, if there's one thing I, I could do over, one thing I wish I had done sooner, anything in that vein? Well, I'll, I'll share a different story because I, I have been an entrepreneur before. And so while, while I was in school and back in college, I started a website called findaplacelive.com, which grew to be the official fundraiser for the American Marketing Association's uh, collegiate chapters. And basically that was a way for schools to run their own off-campus listing services where landlords would pay to have their properties up on the internet. And that didn't exist yet. So that was me solving a problem, but I didn't know how to code, right? I could, I could hack together the minimum viable product, but I knew from the jump that that was something that was going to need to be replaced as the amount of schools scaled and the amount of people signing up properties started to scale. And so what I did is I went to the computer science department and I asked the dean of the computer science department at my school, who are the two students, one that is the, the best student and one that is probably the most deserving student? And uh, could I set up a meeting with them to talk to them about my needs for software development? And so she loved that idea. And so she sent me these two kids and we, we met together and we sat down. And this is before wireframing even was a thing, but we basically wireframed out what this website would need to work and how it would need to function in order to support any school signing up and potentially using it. Eventually it was 323 schools. So it needed to, you know, scale up. And these kids came back to me a couple of weeks later with a proposal and they put the number down and I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to share something with you that you'll probably never get this lesson taught to you this way ever again. Your price is too low <laughs> and I'm going to pay you double what you offered because I'm willing to pay way more than that. But you guys have to understand that what the skills that you guys have are going to be valuable for you for the rest of your life. And you can't undervalue those skills just to get a gig or whatever the case may be. So I'm going to double your fee, but it's still going to be less than what I would have been willing to pay. And those kids ended up, one's an engineer now at Amazon, the other one's an engineer at Redfin. And both of them ended up creating a website that was bulletproof, never broke for 10 years. I mean, they, they like made that a labor of love. And it was because I did a simple thing like paying twice, but still less than I would have paid. And I think that that's a move that anybody can make. If you don't have your own technical skills, to do something, but you have an idea that you think can fly, you know, something like that, go visit your local school and find some, some college kids that might be willing to do the work for, for whatever. Now the costs are going to be higher today than they were <laughs> back then, but, but still that's a good way for you to at least explore and have a conversation with some, some people that would have the skills necessary for whatever you need to build. Oh, that's a, a great story. And Rich, I want to go back to the uniqueness of your technology, because I know for each school, you really made it represent the school itself. So I'd love for our listeners to hear more about that. Yeah. So there was 
there's one thing I wanted it to really immediately do. And that was whenever the kids popped into this virtual world, I wanted it to immediately represent their existing school, right? So we found 28 different local artists that would be willing to draw schools for the software. So basically imagine a third perspective bird's eye view of a school and you got like the building in the background and you got like the, the playground or whatever, the parking lot in the foreground. And so you sort of got this campus and that would be uniquely designed and drawn by each different artist. So that's cool too. Each school would look different, but it would have this immediately recognizable school. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that the school could plug in whatever partners they already had, because I knew how bad those partners were suffering since I was one of those partners. So they could place icons within the world that would give an anchor to the virtual world of that school. And that to me created an anchor of familiarity for something that was new. And I think that's really important. The other thing was the little avatars, like I mentioned when we first started talking about this, they're not designed for a kid to spend 45 minutes creating an avatar that looks like themselves. They're just these little blob, cute little characters that you become when you walk in the world because you still have your your face on the screen like we have in this this Zoom call. So the tech works in a way where you only see the 10 avatars that are nearest to you. So if there's a thousand kids in there, you only see the 10 that are nearest to you. So that sort of keeps it from becoming a total zoo, right? (laughs) And you can then use other icons within the space to say to your friends, hey, let's go meet by the basketball court or let's go meet by the food truck or the, the field trip school bus, whatever the case may be. And that way you can meet your friends, you can hang out together, and then you can go do learning modules or whatever the school has populated the software with or the content that we all live here would produce or other partners that were already working with the school. Curious, did you guys support functionality such as fight at the bike rack? Because that was one of <laughs> one of my favorite activities during the school years. Of no, but the threatening of the bike rack at about your question does relate to a question that was really high on the instructional technology people's minds, right? Like, is this environment going to be a safe environment? Uh, are the bullies going to be able to bully the kids? And the short answer is, I don't know if you can really ever stop bullying, right? Because it, it's been going on since the dawn of time, despite our best efforts. But in this environment, you've got a background layer that's tracking what's happening. And I think it's more akin to if you're on the playground and the bully comes out and starts bullying you, if the principal suddenly shows up, the bully stops bullying, right? And I think that that's what this environment kind of creates because you never know who might just pop up into your group of 10 avatars at any moment in time. So it sort of starts to eliminate the, uh, the risk of just random bullying happening because someone random that you might not want to see <laughs> might just happen to show up in the environment. And then the principal has the ultimate God mode, right? Where they can look back at the, the logs and see exactly what did happen, which was something we felt like was probably important for administrators to be able to have access to it. 
That's awesome. No, it's awesome. Yeah, when you said God mode, I thought, oh, that you can shoot lightning bolts and like, <laughs> levitate and things like that. But yeah, but in essence. I mean, that's a feature we could look into. I think it could be <laughs> kind of cool if, you know, the principal had the ability to just strike you down. Right. <laughs> you put know, you in timeout. Instantly into detention, right? Like no conversation. You don't go to see the dean. You just end up in detention. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and that that does sound like a pretty funny movie. Uh, if we wanted to make that, uh, we're <laughs> you know like living in virtual reality that way. But uh, it, it's really amazing stuff. And I, I think you know we had that conversation before the call about you know uh, clearly there's some very serious challenges in in how uh, we're going to support continuing education for everyone, and that we've got some very serious challenges that these traditional models right, are just not going to be able to support going forward. So uh, please let us know as, as things continue and, and how you continue having success with other school districts. Uh, please keep us up to date. I'm, I'm super curious uh, to see how this all goes forward because I, I think it's, it's definitely a, an environment that uh, really needs to adapt. Yeah, we, we shouldn't be just limited to school within the eight to three or whatever the hours are that the physical building is open our kids shouldn't be limited to whoever's teaching them at that school. If there's the ability for us to create something where the best history teacher in the country or someone like Sherman Dilla Thomas in Chicago is able to create history lessons that our kids can potentially get their curiosity peaked or their interest intrigue built, then we should create those sorts of things. I, I'm a big believer in creativity, curiosity, and confidence being the three C's that kids should learn in school. And that's what I hope we're going to be able to help achieve by getting Schooltopia into these different schools. That's awesome. Thank you. And I, I really love the simplicity of your confidence, right? The clarity, <laughs> right? So you did it again. Kept it simple. It did it simple. <laughs> it's probably naive confidence but it it has to it has to be simple it's got to be simple yeah. otherwise it just yeah people's eyes they roll you know they get lost but uh thank you rich for taking the time uh to to share your experiences what you're doing uh we wish you the best of luck and like i said uh we'd love to have you on the on the uh, podcast again in the future yeah thanks rich well i love it thanks for having me you guys <laughs> awesome uh we also wanted to thank our listeners we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 